Most of us in healthcare are warm, caring people who are committed to keeping our patients safe and doing no harm. But there are some among us who do the unthinkable and betray our noble profession. On this podcast, we like to shine a light on the good and the bad. Each week, I'll be joined by another healthcare professional, and together we'll dive into these stories while chatting about nursing and healthcare along the way. I'm Tina, a registered nurse, and this is Good Nurse, Bad Nurse. Everybody, this is Tina again with Good Nurse, Bad Nurse. Welcome back to another week of true crime. And let's just sit, put it all out there. That's what it is. I mean, you know, I, we were, Carly and I were just talking about how there it used to be sort of a guilty pleasure to listen to true crime and watch true crime. And now it's like, it's like everybody does it. So we're all kind of out in the open now. We definitely do a true crime story, but we also like to balance that out with something good. So we have, that's why it's called Good Nurse, Bad Nurse. So... Welcome back. We're going to have, we've got a, a couple of really good segments for you guys this week. So I want you to stick around for the Good Nurse segment. We are featuring my guest host this week, Carly Newton. Welcome, Carly. Thank you, Tina. It's great to be here. Absolutely. It's great to have you. And I'm super excited about the, t- the what we're going to talk about in the Good Nurse segment. We're going to talk about the work that you've done regarding sickle cell disease. And I want, for, for you nurses who are out there actively working in hospitals, taking care of patients, working in emergency rooms, rooms, working inpatient, having people admitted. And just in general, it's going to be an interesting conversation. We're going to do a little educating, a kind of a refresher course, if you will, about what sickle cell disease is and some some of the symptoms that patients experience and also some of the options that are out there for patients that maybe maybe a lot of people don't know about. So we're going to get into that when we get to the good nurse portion. But for the first story, of course, we always, I like to end on a good note. So we, we put the bad <laughs> nurse story first. I'm excited <laughs> about this bad nurse story. It's, it's a cracker. It's kind of a back in the day a little bit story, but it, it went on for a very long time. And it, it, I don't know, these stories just absolutely baffle the mind sometimes what people are what people will do. It's, it's so ridiculous. So I'm, I'm, I'm just anxious to get into this and let you guys know about this crazy thing that happened. So did you know that you don't have to go all across the country to be a travel nurse? You certainly can, but you don't have to. I literally took an assignment that's an hour and a half away from my house. And I love it. I can stay in a hotel room if I want, or I can drive back home. So it's the best of both worlds for me. For my next assignment, we're going to get a cabin in the mountains that's about two hours from our house. So it'll really be like a little getaway. Also, one of my really good friends is going with me so we can share expenses. You guys, even if you're just a little curious about travel nursing, go to trustedhealth.com forward slash good nurse and fill out a profile so you can see what kind of jobs are out there and what they pay. Go to trustedhealth.com forward slash good nurse and fill out a profile. This is the story of Cheryl Ann Drace. She was born in 1962. She was a former nurse, of course, whose involvement in a murder case made headlines for its unusual circumstances. I told you guys this was going to be kind of crazy. So she was married to Stephen Rudiger, who was found dead on the side of Redwood Road near the entrance of Shabbat Regional Park on December 28th in 1990. Long time ago. That was a long time ago. 
So Rudiger, who was 43 at the time of his death, was a foreman at an auto body shop in Oakland. Drace and Rudiger had a tumultuous relationship and were in the process of getting a divorce at the time of her death. They were married for five years before their divorce, but were still fighting over the Castro Valley house they shared and were both still living in at the time of the murder. So I, I learn a lot when I do these stories. I've been doing them, doing this podcast now for, we're going on five years. It's really been five years because it was in May of 2018. And so I've learned a lot. These things, these stories can be very educational. It's what we were talking about this before, Carly, how I think that that's why a lot of women enjoy or are fascinated by true crime, because we feel like it kind of gives us weapons to arm ourselves with, you know, like we if we know what to expect, we can maybe protect ourselves from it. I don't know. That's yeah. just my theory. I feel like it just makes you more aware. I think, you know, being a single woman living in the US, I remember talking to you before about when the show you came out on Netflix, I'm like, there's no way I want to watch that. But it's actually made me think a little bit differently about when you meet people and when you go on dates. And so if you can become more aware and more educated, you're going to you're gonna make better decisions and help protect yourself. Yeah, I, I love it. And I feel like that's why something that I like what you said before about being a guilty pleasure. You know, we all used to read this, you know, on our own, you know, by ourselves and we're just so much more open to talking about it and bringing it out far more in the open, which I think is brilliant. I love. I do too. I think we have to, we have to talk about things. I've always say we can't just pretend like this stuff doesn't happen. It doesn't help anything. And one of the things that I've learned over the the years of doing these shows or, or, you know, talking about these things that happen is that it is not almost always, I mean, I know it can happen, but it is not a good idea for a couple going through a divorce to stay in the house. Cool. Because <laughs> let me tell you, the number of stories that I have done, and, and a lot, sometimes it, they amicably split, but just the living together, it's really difficult, even though they it's, it appears as though everything's okay. Usually there's one of the or the other that maybe still has some hard feelings. They're trying, you know, they're processing through it pretty, pretty well, but it's, you know, it's, there's usually, it's usually lopsided somewhat, but even if it's not just, you've been, you've been married and now you're going to watch the other person living their own life, talking to other people, engaged in relationships. And even if you're not supposed to, while you're going through divorce, but you're going to see things and it's, going to spark emotions. You just, you're going to get on each other's nerves. It's not easy living with people under the best of circumstances that you actually do love. You know, you, I, my husband and I've been married for 25 years and we get on each other's nerves. I love him so much. He's absolutely the only person. I mean, I just can't imagine my life without him, but yeah, he gets on my nerves. So I can imagine, like, this is a terrible idea. If you are going through a divorce, if there is any possible way, and I understand financial situations, it's just sometimes not possible. But if there's any way that you can get through a a divorce without living under the same roof, you definitely should. You've got a better chance of success, right? (laughs) If you're Mm -hmm. like, I feel absolutely 
And, you know, I've got girlfriends that live in New York and they've told me horror stories about their friends that have broken up with their partners and have had to live with them for 12, 18 months afterwards because the competitive rental market in New York, uh, um, just the price, the cost there, you know, it's just unbelievably hard to move on with your life to remain amicable, even if you were amicable to start with, yet alone if it's not an amicable separation I just could not even imagine and I've got so much empathy for people like you said that are in these situations where they just have to stay in the same house with their ex-partners I just it would be horrible right exactly well to complicate matters matters even further William Joseph DeVincini a Boston native who had been released from a federal prison for his involvement in an armed robbery in which a security guard died moved into their house a few days before Rudiger was killed okay what they're still living in the house together and now she's brought another man in to live with them. What a dynamic. That is so toxic. I cannot even begin to imagine the tension that was in that house. And one of them has been through this. And I I believe in rehabilitation. So I, I don't want to say something that indicates that I think someone could not move on from doing something that's that they went to prison for. And you know, once you're released, I believe in being allowing people to move on from their past, you know, so I don't want to say that, I mean, if someone's done something like this in the past, and then something like, you know, something like this, you know, happens again, you're going to see a pattern, right? Mm -hmm. But I'm just saying, I wouldn't necessarily just go, oh, she started dating somebody who had been in prison. I people do things that people make mistakes. So I, you know, don't want to don't want to assume that, that he wasn't a good person just because he had been to prison, if that makes sense. But that love triangle bringing your new partner into that house of it. Have you not heard of a crazier love triangle since the Tiger King? It was it's just insane, right? (laughs) I mean, I don't ever. How could you ever think this was gonna end? Well, I, I, it blows my mind. It's just bad decision after bad decision. And that's uh, unfortunately the way a lot of these stories go. So this new boyfriend of hers, DeVincini, who was in federal witness protection program and had testified for the government in multiple cases, was involved in a 1983 armed robbery in which a security guard died. He was sentenced to 17 years in prison for armed bank robberies in which he used fake pipe bombs. That's interesting. If they're fake, why? Unless he's had some other type of weapon. But it seems like. I mean, if somebody go, if somebody walks into a bank with a fake gun and they say, give me all your money. And then they, you know, they rob them and they leave. Is that armed robbery? I don't even know. I'm I'm saying it because I swear I don't know. I almost think it should be because if someone thinks it's real, they could do something detrimental that could cause someone's death. You know, if somebody's there that in Tennessee, you can carry a, a gun, apparently. But if someone's carrying a gun, and they happen to be in there in the bank, and this happens, and then they pull their gun out, trying to be a hero, and try to shoot the person, accidentally shoot a bystander, 
Do you know what I'm saying? Yeah. Like, and maybe, yeah. maybe it should be yeah. considered if you're trying to yep. ca- to pass it off as a weapon. No, I, I completely know. agree. You know, fake or not, I still think you're still going to do the same psychological trauma damage to the to your victims. You know, they're still got a very high chance of getting PTSD and not being able to do you know function the way they did pre robbery. I think fake or not. I feel like if you've got the intent and you set the scene and show intentions, like A, to your point, some innocent people could still get hurt. It's still very high risk. And B, I feel the psychological impact, you know, I, I feel like it's just a severe fake or real if you if you set it up with the intent. Yeah, I agree. Well, the Alameda County Sheriff's Office stated that he and Drace were pen pals before they became a couple. See, 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 bad idea. Bad idea, people. Do you know, <laughs> I've often wondered, and I actually went on a website because this is my rabbit holes, that I was listening to a podcast about how a woman became pen pals with a death row inmate, and it was a really fascinating podcast, and I was like, how do you decide that that's what I want to do? And to your point, I think some people do it for good that these people are in isolation and they believe in rehab and that's all great. But when you go on these websites, and I've never actually done it, but just the rabbit holes I get down, it was pretty confronting because they'll tell you their stories and you're like, that's the person I'm going to start writing to. I just, mm-hmm. to me, it's always been fascinating since I heard the podcast about what kind of people want to start a relationship or a friendship with these people on that have done some pretty questionable things in their life. And I, th- I think maybe for some people that do this, this I don't know if, if men do this or not. I feel like I've only heard of women doing it, but I'm sure there are men have done it as well. But I think that there's something about reaching out, being able to connect with somebody who has done something like that, who has that capacity to do something like that, that's, I don't know, just got that sort of personality, just a completely, that darkness, they can connect with them, but they're safe from them because they're locked up in prison, especially if they're on death row, they know they're never going to get out. So there's something there, it seems like for some people that they, they just want to be, they want to have that connection. It's some, somehow it's thrilling to them to have that connection. But to reach out to someone who's in prison and really develop a true relationship to the point that you're waiting for them to get out of prison and then you're you're going to let him move in with you. Oh, my goodness. I know. Yeah. And I wonder how far down the riding, you know, hi, Cheryl, you know, it's great to meet you. I wonder where it turns from, you know, that friendship and that comfort to – I love you so much. Come and move in with me. It, I just, it would, those letters would have been very interesting. <laughs> no. Yeah. I think there's absolutely. a podcast there, right? <laughs> yeah, probably. Yeah. Probably yeah. so. There should be. Yeah. We all know that when we're taking any medication or supplement, dosage matters, and it's important to take enough to get the desired result. For example, only taking a 10 milligram Tylenol might not help with your headache. Well, the same is true for CBD. If you try a low dose CBD product, you may not feel anything, but it's not the CBD's fault. The dosage is the problem. 
This is why CBD Stat only makes high-dose CBD products that actually work. And now their products are getting even stronger. CBD Stat is happy to announce that they're launching a new extra strength version of its highly popular topical products that have 7,500 milligrams of CBD. This new strength will by far maintain CBD Stat's status as the most powerful CBD product line on the market. More CBD means it's more effective in helping everyone tackle daily aches and pains. CBD Stat sent me a box of these new products and I already knew it was going to work because I've been using it for my neck pain and foot pain, but I can definitely tell the difference in this new strength and I'm really excited to get to tell you guys about it. And on top of these new higher strength products, they're also dropping prices across the board on all their products to make CBD Stat not only the most effective on the market, but also the most affordable. And don't forget, all you healthcare workers out there get a special additional discount to help keep you strong. Just head to cbdstat.care forward slash healthcare and find your new secret weapon. That's cbdstat.care forward slash healthcare. It wasn't until November of 2013 that's a long time, that DNA evidence and tips from two informants provided enough evidence for authorities to arrest and charge Drace and DeVincini with Rudiger's murder. At the time of their arrest, Drace and DeVincini, how many times am I going to have to say this name? Had It's just not an easy, it doesn't just roll off the tongue. But they had been divorced from each other for several several years. So that, that relationship didn't work out. I think we could have probably... I think we all knew that that was not going to probably go anywhere. So she was working as a nurse at the time and taking care of her elderly mother in San Leandro while DeVincini was still serving time in a federal prison. So at the time when she was, when, when she met him, she was working as a nurse, I guess. So the two of them got married in Reno on the day after they fatally stabbed Rudiger and dumped his body on the side of Redwood Road. Rudiger was the father of three daughters from a previous marriage. Yeah. Authorities claim that Drace was the mastermind behind the plot to kill Rudiger. Drace pleaded guilty to second degree murder in late April of 2019, just before she was set to go to trial. So, you know, if if she's the kind of person who could mastermind killing someone that she had been married to, even if you, you know, are arguing over bricks and sticks, you know, a house, if she's that kind of person, then I guess she, why wouldn't you expect her to become pen pals with someone in prison? Yeah, that's you know, true. And then, it's all guess, making you know, sense. The pu- like the pieces of the right? puzzle all getting put together. The story goes on, but I meant how cold blooded to be the mastermind to, stab your ex-partner and then go and get married the next day yeah i'm really it's hard for me to understand and i know they weren't her children but how i i'm always just really confused and perplexed by people who can take the someone take children's parents away from them and with complete forethought and malice like it's not like oh this was a spur of the moment in the heat of the moment rage but literally premeditated, deliberately take the life of someone and cause all of the pain and suffering that you're going to cause for the rest of their lives, these children, these innocent children, and all of the rest of their family and friends. But there is, there obviously, it's scary when I think about all the stories that are out there to do like this. There are so many people who just really do not care about the pain and suffering that they inflict on other people. And that is truly terrifying. Yeah. Oh, 
Absolutely. Like you said, it's it's the heat of the moment stuff versus the tactical, I'm planning this for days. And so you know the full consequences. And then to your point, the children, I meant when, as soon as you said the children, my heart broke and I've never met them before. It's just taking away their father, what kind of person he was, that's, you know, Irrelevant. Irrelevant, exactly right, you know, but to go and plan this and think this is your only option out of a bad situation, that's also what I don't understand. How can you possibly think this is the best option for this not ideal scenario you've got yourself into and just the amount of pain you're going to cause so many people from doing this as well? It's it's just unfathomable, right? It really is. Her, her attorney, Todd Bequette, stated that Drace received a plea offer because DiVincini backed out of an agreement that he had made with prosecutors to testify against her. And that's another thing that happens in these situations. If you have an accomplice, if you're deciding, I, I'm, I feel like I'm not trying to give people advice on how to commit a crime. My first advice, my only advice to people thinking about committing a crime is do not do it you are going to get caught at the very least. You shouldn't be doing it because you should want to be a better person than that. But if you are just really a horrible person and you're thinking of doing something like this, you're going to get caught. People get caught all the time. You're not smarter than the police. And when you go to commit a, a crime, things don't ever go the way you think they're going to go. I don't care how well you think you planned it out. You're like, oh, I've thought all these things out, the possibilities, everything that could happen. And I've got a plan. And, and, and so you think you've somehow masterminded this perfect crime. When you actually begin doing things, nothing ever goes the way you really expect it to. And in the heat of the moment, you forget things. You don't even realize, you know, that you do this. We do this all the time. How many times do we do things, we forget things in our, just in our daily lives? Imagine under the pressure of all the adrenaline of knowing you just did something and you've, you know, you've got this time constraint. You just don't do it. That's my first and absolutely only advice is to just don't do it. Don't commit crimes. But Having said that, if you're going to have an accomplice, you you know, this is that's a bad idea because you will turn on each other. What they will get one of you to crack. And so if both of you are arrested, you you better be the first one to start talking cuz somebody's going to talk and then the other one is going to get the bulk of the punishment, right? Oh, sound advice, Tina. Honestly, I've never really thought about it before, but absolutely. Oh my goodness. I thought about like, it too much. Yeah. And I, as I'm sitting here, I'm like, yes. Like if I was going to go and murder someone, I would just do it myself and keep my mouth shut, right? But yeah, I meant there's people talk about their ride or die people, right? And, you know, this is the person I'd call if I killed someone and they'd come and help me bury them. I'm just like, no, all of that's gone. People that talk about that these days, I'm like, no, you're wrong. Do it yourself. Like, protect yourself. Look after yourself. But even more sound advice, don't do it in the first place. <laughs> right, exactly. <laughs> exactly. Apparently, he had worked out some sort of a deal, uh, some sort of agreement with them to testify against her, but then he backed out, which gave her – so they're just going back and forth. You know, they start out with him. They decide, oh, she's the mastermind. He decides, you know what, that's not such a good deal for me. He backed out of it, I guess, was going to take his chances with trial. And then they, they they just go to her. Okay, fine, we'll offer her an agreement. And then so 
Had the DA's office convinced a jury that she and DiVincini had planned the murder and obtained a first-degree murder verdict, Drace would have faced up to 26 years to life in prison. Instead, she received a plea deal that made her eligible for parole in nine years. Her attorney expects her to first be eligible for parole when she turns 70 years old. So I don't really feel like nine years is long enough for taking the life of someone who it was completely unprovoked. You didn't, there was no, it was completely unnecessary. It's not like you're trying to protect yourself or protect someone else. There's, there was just no reason for her to do this. And so premeditated. So nine years is really hard for me to understand. But I, I understand though, that so much time had passed, that they were probably worried that a jury would not think that there was enough evidence, even though there was that somewhat of DNA evidence, they probably would be thinking. And then if he backed out, you know, so I guess I, I guess I get it. But. Well, it's funny, because when you say nine years, to me, I'm like, that's a long time when I think about my life and what I've done in the last nine years. I've lived in three yeah. different countries. Um, sure is. You know, the the experiences and everything that I've got to do. So my initial thing was, holy moly, nine years is a long time. But then to your point, if something's so premeditated, whether she got the, the plea bargain to be able to, you know, get the reduced time, yes, people can reform, but how safe do you feel with people walking around the streets with that kind of very premeditated, cold-blooded, psychopathic, maybe, I'm not a psychiatrist, you know, persona. So nine years is a long time when you think about what you could achieve in life, but it's a very small drop in the pond for the lifetime of pain that she's caused people and everything else. There's two ways of looking at it, I guess. But And then I guess, you know, maybe she did all this to keep the house and I can't imagine she would ever be able to keep the house. Or I just don't understand how she thought this was her best option. Like, apart from the fact that it's psychotic and everything else, just the situation she got herself into. It's it's this is what you yeah. decided to do. Yeah. yeah, yeah. It makes no sense. The Vincini pleaded guilty to second degree murder in connection with Rudiger's death in February 2016 and was sentenced to 15 years to life in the state prison. Drace and DeVincini were sentenced on the same day. At their sentencing hearings, prosecutor Angela Backers claimed that Drace was the mastermind behind the plot to kill Rudiger. The case was an unsolved mystery for more than two decades before authorities finally made arrests and brought Drace and DeVincini to justice. And that is the story of Cheryl Drace. Our bad Cheryl horse. Drace. Just bad decision after bad decision. Absolutely. So I have to tell you guys about an experience I had with a nursing student. So you know I've been doing travel nursing. Well, this hospital where I'm at has a lot of LPN students doing their clinicals there. So one of them was following me around one day and she noticed my stethoscope. And of course, Y'all know the Echo Technology Company that sponsors our podcast. They teamed up with Littman to make the stethoscopes, to beat all stethoscopes, the 3M Littman Core Digital Stethoscope. And this is the one that I use now. So she said, oh my gosh, I've been wanting to try one of those. So of course I let her use it. And she just could not stop talking about it for the rest of the shift. It was so cute. She was like, you know, I can't hear anything with my normal stethoscope because I have tinnitus. And so she was so excited because she could actually hear what heart sounds were supposed to sound like. She said, I'm going to ask for one of these for graduation. And I was like, yeah, you definitely should. So just so you know, the echo technology that makes the stethoscope so amazing 
uh, you can enable it with a flip of a switch. You can turn it on and off. It has active noise cancellation up to 40 times amplification, wireless auscultation using Bluetooth technology. It connects with Echo's free app and software so that you can visualize, record, share, live stream, analyze heart sounds, lung sounds, and whatever body sounds you want to listen to. So you can go to echohealth.com and use the promo code GNBN to get $50 off your order. And that's Echo is spelled E-K-O, by the way. So it's echohealth.com and use the GNBN promo code to get $50 off your order. I also wanted to remind you that if you're interested in travel nursing, to go to trustedhealth.com forward slash good nurse and fill out a profile so you can see what kind of jobs are out there. And you can also see what they pay, the stipend, the hourly rate, all of that. I'm a travel nurse now with Trusted Health, and I absolutely love working for them. So go to trustedhealth.com, be sure and put forward slash good nurse so that they'll know that we sent you there and fill out a profile today. So I guess that we can get into our good nurse segment, which I'm super excited to talk about. We, we were kind of talking about this before we started recording, and I've taken care of several patients with sickle cell disease in my time as a bedside nurse. And one thing that always stands out to me about sickle cell, when someone says they're there for some sort of exacerbation or, infl- you know, inflammation, pain crisis, I think is what they call it. If I'm getting that in report, I immediately know, oh, goodness, this is not going to be good. Because the, these patients, oftentimes, you really can't get their pain under control. It's so bad. So I'm super excited to get to number one, just kind of talk about what sickle cell disease is just sort of remind people or for people there, there are actually a lot of people listen to this podcast that aren't nurses and are not help, not medical. So I always love to when I hear from those people and they say, Hey, I've learned so much from your show. So first of all, just tell everybody who you are and kind of how you know, your journey of becoming a nurse. Yeah, so I fell into nursing, thanks to my mom. So when I was Finishing high school, I was one of those children, teenagers that had no idea what they wanted to do. I decided I was going to go and study philosophy at uni and just learn and absorb knowledge and learn. Well, my mum's a single mother and was supporting me through college and she said, that's great, but can you do something that's more tangible, something that, you know, we can look at getting you a job after you finish university and I'm not saying that, you know, the arts degrees are any anything less than nursing degrees or more practical degrees, but I can see where my mum was coming from. And so she said to me, why don't you look at doing nursing? I was like, oh, I don't know. You know, I've always been very outgoing, very caring. It was funny when I went to my careers day at school, I went and saw the, the counsellor. My mum and I went in and sat down and my top jobs that would suit her to me the number one was a taxi driver and my mum and I just laughed because they said well you like to talk to people you like to travel so I've always had this very outgoing very caring very inquisitive personality and mum said why don't you why don't you try nursing my best friend at the time had just gotten into nursing at a university in Australia so I applied for second round and got in and Really spent the first year, didn't fall in love with it, did my first year and then took a gap year and travelled around Australia and came back. I actually did some work as a nurse assistant in some nursing homes while I was travelling around Australia and came back and just loved my last two years of nursing and 
really enjoyed the aspect of being able to help patients, help families, really empower people to make better choices, even in that training period. And really kind of fell in love with nursing where where I had it was never on one of my top priority lists. And it's funny now when people ask me about nursing, you know, my younger nieces and nephews or my, my friends' children's, I'm like, absolutely do it. It's just one of the best degrees I think you can you can get. The skills you, you get and the experiences you get with nursing are just unbelievable. So I'm a huge what advocate kind of nursing now. Did, have you, what all kind of nursing have you done? So I went straight from my undergrad in Australia. We've got something called a graduate nurse program where you spend 12 months and you do a surgical medical rotation in a specialty and ended up in intensive care. And just found my home. Loved it. It was a general ICU unit that I worked in. We had cardiovascular. We had some pediatric patients. We had a liver transplant unit. And so in Australia, when I was an intensive care nurse, it was a very general role. So we in Australia, we didn't have a respiratory therapist that would come in and manage the ventilator or a dialysis nurse that would come in and manage the dialysis machine. If we were looking after a patient, we had to be ready to set up, manage and troubleshoot ECMO machines, balloon pumps, Swangans catheters, ventilators, whatever it was. And to me, that was just wonderful in the fact that it I'm very inquisitive. I love to troubleshoot. It allowed me to really do a job where I could do all the things that I I love, and then as well as that, being able to help people in intensive care. I mean, you've you've been an intensive care nurse. I mean, just looking after people in their families on what is probably one of the worst days of their lives. It's such a privilege to be able to be there, and it's just such a satisfying role to be able to go in and put your hand up and be able to help people in those situations. So I loved it. I didn't know I was going to love it. It was never on my list to be a nurse, but I'm so grateful every day that I went down that path. How long did you actually work at the bedside? I worked at the bedside for about eight years. So I went and did in Australia intensive care nursing. You can go and do postgraduate degree. So I did a two-year postgraduate degree in uh, intensive care nursing. And then probably after that eight years full-time, I started getting into more education for commercial companies and was still doing intensive care nursing part-time, but really started moving towards my passion of education and educating people and patients. So probably about 12 years all up, about eight years full-time, and then kind of did a hybrid role of part-time education for commercial companies and then or industry and then part-time nursing, which was great as well. And then how did you kind of transition into your work with the sickle cell disease? How did that how did that come about? Yeah, that's a really good question. So I've always had this passion for educating people, helping people be be able to make informed choices. And so I was always the first one to put my hand up when nursing students came through intensive care units. I always have just loved spending time with people that are interested in learning and want to learn. I've always just loved doing that. And so I had been working part-time for a 
pharmaceutical company doing some spirometries for some of their patients and talking to educating their patients around the importance of staying on chronic treatments to be able to benefit their health and quality of life and then decided I want to leave my little hometown of Adelaide and move to either Sydney or Melbourne and I applied for some roles and the recruiter found me this apheresis role working for Truma Blood and Cell Technologies and I remember when the recruiter first asked me would I be interested in the role he said it's apheresis I was like apheresis I do remember doing some plasmapheresis you know in intensive care from time to time but you know what I didn't understand and the recruiter told me about was it was you know, plasma exchange it was red cell exchange it was collecting stem cells and I was like my goodness like there is just so many different things that apheresis can do and be beneficial for it had all the qualities I really loved about working, like the troubleshooting, helping people. And so just by luck, because it's such a small company in Australia, a clinical educator role came up and I applied for it and got it and just have not looked back since. I absolutely love it. Wow. So specifically about the sickle cell disease, can you sort of maybe start off by just explaining if you whatever however you want to explain about sickle cell disease yeah so sickle cell disease is an inherited trait that mainly affects people with african or middle eastern heritage so these patients actually have a different type of red blood cell to you and i and it's called hemoglobin s and these hemoglobin s cells there's a couple of things with these hemoglobin s cells the first thing is that they have a much shorter lifespan than a normal red cell. So a normal red cell lives about 120 days. A sickle cell is got a half has a half life of about 15 to 20 days. So these patients are always in this chronic state of anemia. But then to make things more challenging, these hemoglobin S cells because they're not like normal red cells, when they start to become hypoxic, they become rigid and, and start to form this sickle shape, which is where the sickle cell disease name comes from. So when they start to form these sickle shapes, they become inflexible and sticky and they start to get stuck in small vessels, which can cause pain and other serious complications for these patients. So infection, you think if you're not getting enough blood flow to your peripheries, you're thinking about infection, stroke, acute chest syndrome. So you can really start to understand that on top of the anemia and this sort of chronic process where these cells become sickled and, and make it hard to travel for, through blood, you start to get all these other complications. So it's really, and there is no cure at this stage, so it is a, a pretty horrible disease to live with is an understatement. Hmm. So what... What options do patients have? I mean, how how does this work? I I feel like there there are like there are from what my experience has been with these patients is they have these acute exacerbations where it's extremely painful. So and you're just trying to manage their pain for them. But what are their options that they have? Yeah, and so this is what I'm really passionate about. You know, working closely with patient advocate groups and physicians. So patients start to can understand and make educated decisions around 
their treatment and and to really get them better quality of life. So a big treatment for sickle cell disease is something called hydroxyurea out there. So it's a medication that increases the hemoglobin F in sickle cell patients and it's got a higher affinity of oxygen so that can help with the anemia. The other option, treatment option you've got is transfusion therapy. So the goal of transfusion therapy is to increase the oxygen carrying capacity of the sickle cell patients. If you think they're already anemic and we're giving them healthy red cells, it means that they're going to have more oxygen to be able to oxygenate their organs and keep them healthier. But what's really interesting about transfusion therapy is that not every transfusion therapy is the same and they come with benefits and disadvantages, everyone. So when we look at different transfusion therapies, we can look at today something called simple transfusion therapy compared to red blood cell exchange, which is what the device that I educate on does. And so with simple transfusion, these patients will come in once or twice a month and have one to two, generally, one. To, everybody's different, but generally one to two units of blood infused. So it's about half a day they're there for, you think it's about two to three hours per red cell transfusion. And it will increase the oxygen for these patients. But what will happen is over time, they will actually start to increase their iron because you're infusing red cells or not taking anything away. And then that can lead to, you know, damage with organs if it's not maintained. So a lot of these patients, well, most of these patients on simple transfusion therapy need to actually be on some sort of chelation therapy to be able to remove iron from the body. And that can be expensive. And because of the way it actually binds to the iron, you know, they can have upset GI systems and it can be hard to maintain. So the difference with red blood cell exchange is that we connect them to an apheresis device and as we start to remove the patient's red cells, we're simultaneously replacing them with donor cells. And so what that means is because you're simultaneously removing and replacing the cells at the same time, it negates the need to use chelation therapy because it's what we call an iron neutral therapy. So one of the biggest benefits of these procedures is the fact that they can be done, we can increase oxygenation for these patients without increasing iron, without increasing viscosity, which is also very important. You think if they're at high risk of having strokes or vasoocclusive crisis, you want to make sure that you keep that viscosity the treatments, the sickle cell treatments can actually be spread out, you know, depending on the treatment program that the physician and patient have. Some of these red cell exchange procedures are done every four to six weeks compared to every two weeks with simple transfusion therapy. So it becomes a better quality of life for the patient and the fact they're not having to spend as much time in the hospital as well. And I think the, the other thing about it is that it can actually be done Peripherally. So I think some patients might get anxious when they look at an apheresis machine and think it's quite a big machine and I'm going to need some sort of catheter to hook myself up to that machine. In reality, most of these patients can have these procedures done via just peripheral cannulas. 
We can do it single needle. And the amount of blood outside your body for the procedure is less than a can of cola. So, you know, it's been very, it's a very safe procedure. Um, there are some great benefits to getting patients on these red blood cell exchange chronic programs, as well as acute, you know, cases where it could be beneficial as well. We're really all about educating patients to be able to ask the right decisions for their physicians to be able to understand if red blood cell exchange is a suitable type of therapy for them and help them manage their disease. So if there's someone listening then that either them or a family member is suffering from this illness, then they, this is something if they've never heard of, they maybe could just go talk to their doctor about it. Is it something that's usually covered by most insurances or? Yeah, absolutely. So most of our, most of our patients are actually CMS, Medicare, Medicaid patients for red blood cell exchange and it's covered by CMS. It's also covered by some insurance companies. Obviously, it's registered. We have an indication for sickle cell disease. And so what I would really encourage somebody out there that either has sickle cell disease or has a loved one or cares for someone with sickle cell disease is you can head to our website, trumobct.com. And we've actually got a patient information page where there's some great resources on there around educating patients with sickle cell disease and really helps educate patients around what sort of questions they should be asking their physician about is red cell exchange right for me? And it might not be right for every patient, but you know, there's some great retrospective studies out there and I've talked to lots of patients out there where it has increased their quality of life. It has decreased their vaso-occlusive crisis. It's allowed them to travel for the first time. You know, these amazing stories that wouldn't be possible without therapy such as red cell exchange to keep these people healthy. Yeah. And, and I, you know, I would like to just remind people we were, this is another thing we were chatting about before we started recording, that I know how difficult it is sometimes working in a hospital. And I have never been an emergency room nurse, but I've, I've talked to enough of them that I, I kind of, I have empathy for them. I know what they go through. I know how difficult their job is. But sometimes as nurses, we get desensitized to people complaining about pain especially I think in emergency rooms. And so people come in complaining about pain all the time. And I think nurses and other, you know, providers, people in general, I think healthcare people that are working kind of that front line almost maybe can become somewhat, you know, I hate to word, use the word jaded, but just sort of, they put up a wall. I think, I think it's almost to protect themselves because you can't, you Everybody that comes through, you can't just empathize with everybody and get all wrapped up. And, you know, so it's, it's, you almost have to protect yourself from all of that emotion that can happen when somebody's in so much pain. But then also, they don't, I think a lot of times they don't believe the person when someone comes in and they're, they're saying, Hey, I'm in pain. And they, they have seen 30 people already come through the door saying they're complaining of pain. And everyone is different. Then I think that that's why that happens. But I would just ask people, and it's easy. Inpatient nursing is it's the same thing. You deal with the same sort of thing. We have to remind ourselves to why we went into this profession and to try to maintain our our professionalism. And 
not assume that someone is lying when they tell you that they're in pain. Because you, if you stop and think about it, if you had 100 people that were walking in there literally just wanting pain medicine, they are absolutely fine, not in any pain. They are just completely pretending like they're hurting and they're not. And but you, you know, you, you had 100 people, but you had one extra person who really is in excruciating pain, to the point that they they just literally feel like they're going to die. I would hope that I could treat everyone the same, such that you wouldn't know which one I think, you know, is, is faking it and which one is so if you treat everyone the same and assume that they're telling the truth and I mean, our job as nurses is basically to just ask, assess those, the, the pain questions. Yes, you can determine sometimes someone's pain level by their vital signs, by their heart rate and their blood pressure, but not always. Cause you know, we were talking about this also. Sometimes people get so used to being pain in pain that they're, they're, their, you know, physiologically, their body doesn't really respond to it in the same way. That doesn't mean they're not feeling pain. Also, I think people have different coping mechanisms, and they can literally be in excruciating pain and looking at their phone, and maybe not complaining about it outwardly, or maybe talking to someone that doesn't mean that they're not in excruciating pains. I just want to try to remind people of that because I see so many memes on social media about, oh yeah, you say you're in 10 out of 10 pain and you're sitting there scrolling on your phone and all that stuff. And I feel like those are so unprofessional and just unnecessary. And it just promotes that whole idea of, of judging people. And we don't, we are, we should not be trying to judge people in that way. It's just not our job. Like you said, it's coping mechanism to a point, Mm -hmm. but then being a nurse, it's our role to be these advocates for patients. And I couldn't imagine, I mean, the, when I talk to sickle cell patients, just the way they describe these vaso-occlusive crises are just heart-wrenching. It just sounds horrific, right? And to your point, if you've grown up your whole life with that kind of pain, you're, you, you're, you might present in an emergency department and your blood pressure and heart rate might be pretty average, pretty normal. And then you're sitting there on your phone waiting because you've, you, it's your fifth vaso-occlusive crisis this month and you're just used to things. And that's where we've really got to take a step back as a nurse, realize that pain is such a subjective thing. I meant there are some objective things we can look at, but we're really there to advocate for all patients, but especially chronic patients that sometimes might not present as you would an acute acute episode. So I think that's a really, really nice point that at the end of the day, we are there to advocate to help people feel better, to, you know, help them with a better quality of life. And as hard as that is, we've really got to make sure that we we think about that and we we're thinking about patients and I really liked what you said around if I had Ted patients and I was treating them all for pain I would like to think that nobody could tell the ones that I thought were in more pain than others or were telling the truth or not that you know the way we treated them was exactly the same that our biases didn't come in because I think that's 
you know, it's it's an incredibly important trait or gift for a nurse to have, you know, and I think the hardest thing is working in emergency departments or intensive care, you you get biases. I meant there's so many other wonderful things we talked about, skill sets you pick up being a nurse, but in reality, you are going to pick up biases because of the things you see and the people you treat and the the continuous rotation of the same sort of types of people you treat. It's really important that you understand your biases, whether you realize they're unconscious or not, and work on that as a nurse. I think it's incredibly important. Yeah, and the way that they're treated sometimes, I, I think too, because emergency room nurses and staff can just really... They, Nurses, any nurse dealing in direct patient care can be, we can be physically abused, verbally abused, but I think emergency room staff, right, they get the bulk of it. And so I always commend them and I'm I'm so appreciative of them for doing that very, very difficult job. But just especially if you have somebody coming in that has a history of sickle cell disease, stop and think about that and just just don't let it try not to let your biases, you know, interfere with your nursing care and being a professional. Yeah, really well said, Tina. I think it's one of the most important things a nurse can work on apart from keeping up to speed with all the technology and the new therapies coming out on the market, but just making sure you're aware of your biases whether we said they're unconscious or not, we develop them. You know, if we can keep on top of that and and remain completely independent in the way we make decisions, you know, I feel like that is a huge, huge trait for a for a good nurse. Is there anything that we haven't talked about that you, you want to add to our discussion? Not really. I mean, you know, we could, I mean... Not really. I mean, we could talk about how these patients can keep themselves healthy by keeping hydrated and getting good sleep. But I feel like, you know, we we hit the, the mark around the different transfusion therapies. And I think that's my passion that, you know, all of these therapies at the moment are driven towards, you know, increasing oxygenation because of the chronic anemia. And because, I mean, the other thing is these hemoglobin S cells have a a, a much lower oxygen affinity than normal red cells as well. I think the only thing we can talk a little bit about is that, you know, there are some great curative trials going on with CRISPR therapies and stem cell therapies for these patients, which is really exciting. But it's really important that people understand that they're still in very early stages and the best thing we can do for these patients now is keep them healthy. So making sure that, you know, they don't have excessive iron in their bodies in their current treatment plans to keep their organs healthy. So one day, if there is a curative therapy available, when they do have the curative therapy treatment, they can have a great quality of life after because they don't have any any issues because we haven't kept them healthy while they were having their sickle cell disease. So that would probably be the only other thing is that as as far as, you know, it's really exciting that there are some curative therapies on the horizon. We need to keep focus and really make sure we keep these patients healthy to be able to enjoy that you know, what's down the the road, which is, you know, really exciting, but 
a little far away and we've got to concentrate on keeping these patients healthy. So remind everybody where they can go for more information. Yeah, so you can go to our website, terumobct.com. You can learn more about sickle cell disease at terumobct.com or we've got a great sickle cell website and that's at reach.terumobct.com and that's where you can find more information about sickle cell disease, about different types of transfusion therapy and what questions you can ask your doctor to start these conversations around what therapy is right for me. Wonderful, wonderful. Thank you so much for coming on the podcast and helping me host this episode, Carly. Thank you so much, Tina. I really enjoyed it. And of course, you guys know you can find me at goodnursebadnurse.com or goodnursebadnurse on all social media. You can email me at tina at goodnursebadnurse.com. Always love to hear from you you guys. And of course, I have to remind you that even if you're a bad girl or a bad boy, be a good nurse. <laughs>